If you have your Bibles, join me in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. So we've been in the book of Haggai for several weeks now. Last week we looked at, you get a vision. So kind of for those of you that haven't been here, I'll give you a recap. Uh, the Israelites had come out of Babylonian captivity. Persia had delivered them, rescued them. And the king of Persia said God told him to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And so they got back and they initially set up the foundation and uh, put an altar, a makeshift altar. And then the people got busy working on their own homes. And that went on for some 20 years. And so Haggai confronts the people and says, wait a minute. When we got freed from the Babylonians, God told us to go back and build a temple. And now we're dwelling in our paneled houses. We have nice roofs. We've gotten on with our lives and we have forgotten God. Now the Israelites immediately, as we looked at, repented. And if I remind us, that when we repent, immediately God responds. And so God did respond. And he said, how does this temple look to you now? Which was a big question. And they looked at it and they go, well, they're, they're thinking, it doesn't look like the temple we left when we went into captivity. It says nothing. And so God says, yeah. This is what the temple looks like. And once the people got a vision of the temple of God and what it used to look like and what it looked like now, it strengthened the people. And God said, okay, now I want you to be strengthened and I'm going to strengthen you to do the work. And so that's where we pick up today. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This, these, are <laughs> these are very difficult uh, verses. There's not one way to view this. And uh, several, there's three basic interpretations. I spent a lot of time going through each of these interpretations this week. The first one is the non-Messianic. And that is lifted from the phrase, in a little while, where Haggai says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while. Uh, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But some see this as non-messianic. There's others that see it as messianic. Therefore, it foresees the coming of Christ. And then there's the third option, and one in which um, I have a tendency to lean to, is a blend of both interpretations. Usually, particularly when <laughs> there's so many different scholars going all the way back to Augustine, that see these verses uh, in a different light. And I'll try to bring out some of those today. But I don't want to lose sight of the big points. And the big point is this. First and foremost, God will be glorified. And we begin with the shaking. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Yet once more, when you look at this, uh, this implies that there was a previous shaking. Yet once more, 
and I will shake everything. So that implies something that has already taken place, one shaking that has already taken place. The only thing that I can think of closely related, since this is related to the book of uh, Ezra, uh, one is Mount Sinai. Now you remember God had taken the Israelites out of Egypt, out of the bondage of Egypt. It seems like the nation of Israel is always coming out of some type of bondage some type of catastrophe, and, and yet God is always willing to take them back. And particularly, again, let me say this, that when you repent of sin, it is immediately washed out by the blood of Christ, and that relationship is restored. But when we look at the first shaking, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So when Haggai writes here, he obviously has this in his mind that there was a shaking that took place before. And when the people saw Mount Sinai trembling, they feared. And then, of course, God brings in the Ten Commandments. And, of course, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. So the phrase mihat, in a little while, the Hebrew word mihat um, is loaded. And let me tell you what it means. Yet in a little while can refer to future. <laughs> and it can refer to immediate. So you have to walk a line here theologically that it could mean a short time or it could mean a long time. And this is where you have godly scholars arguing over yet in a little while. He says here that I will shake, rosh, which means an earthquake. Uh, we think about earthquakes. Back in 19, I think it was 1980. Three when I had re-enlisted to go to Hawaii. They, they forced me. Uh, when I got to Oakland and San Francisco where I shipped the car out, uh, they allowed me to stay on the military base and I was watching the evening news. Now this was in 1983 and they were already talking about the big earthquake that was coming. And I said, well, as long as I get out of here before that thing hits, we're okay. <laughs> Which it did hit. When I was in Germany, years later in the, in the late 80s, it did hit. But this is the kind of magnitude of an earthquake. And God says, I'm going to shake it. I am going to shake everything. So when we look at earthquakes in the Bible, it's always, well, I want to say 90% of the time, it is God's intervention into a situation. And particularly when we come to the Old Testament, Amos 1.1, Isaiah 2.13-21, Joel 3.16, Ezekiel 38.20, all of these things. A Amos says, two years before the earthquake. Uh, you go in and you start seeing that earthquakes are God's intervention. Now, if we think about earthquakes in our own lives, things that rattle us, 
one thing to keep in mind is that when your world is rattled, God may be trying to speak to you. Because James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. For God is at work. We are not like the unsaved. We are not like the lost world. God does not allow a hurt to go unnoticed or escaped and have no plan and place in our life. God uses every event in our life, good or bad, to shape us into the image of his son. Well, when we come here, he says, I will shake. So let me give you a little view here. I'm not going to espouse to either one of these views. I think the middle road for me as a pastor uh, and as a preacher, knowing I have to stand before God, I don't really want to come down on one side or the other, but I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you experience both sides. I have my own personal belief, but that stays away from the pulpit. So, the shakings. Now, if you let your eyes drift over to Haggai chapter 2, this is later in the text that, that we'll get to. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. So if we look at the shakings in this light, just for a minute, and then I'll throw a, I'll throw a wrench into the works. So if we look at it this way, Babylon defeated Persia. Remember, Babylon had gone into Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, and actually Nebuchadnezzar took everything. He took all the finances, all of these, left with the king of Babylon. And he took the nation of Israel into captivity. But then Persia came along. The Lord of hosts, remember, the Lord of hosts, Haggai uses it 14 times in two chapters. The Lord of hosts refers to can refer to a heavenly army, and it can refer to a physical army. So here you have God shaking the situations in the Israelites' lives. So Babylon defeats Persia. Persia says, okay, you are free to go. You can go back to Jerusalem. And actually the king said, you're going to go back because God revealed it to me, that you should go back. Check out Ezra. Uh, the book of Ezra parallels this. But then Persia is defeated by the Greeks. Persia is defeated by the Greeks. And of course, Alexander the Great becomes the instrument by which God ushers in the New Testament. Those of you that spent 18 months with me, <laughs> 18 months with me understanding the intertestamental period of, of time. Do you remember that when we were only going to go a month and I wound up going 18 months on that? Uh, we, we lost a lot of people on the note. Um, Alexander the Great, he comes along and defeats the Persians. But at the same time now, I want you to understand, at the same time, God uses Alexander the Great to usher in the New Testament era. But then, 
again. The Greeks are defeated by Rome. Now look, if we look at this, and of course they're the dominant empire. So when we look at our world, God shakes these kings. God is the one who installs the kings, and God is the one who takes out the kings. God is the one that allows empires to rise, and God is the one that crumbles those empires just like that. And that's God. We don't look at our world and go, oh my gosh, it's horrible. And I agree with you. It is horrible. But I am telling you, God only allows this stuff to go on so far. And then he will shake it and it'll change. And we, that's good news for us. That's good news for us. Now the effects of this shaking are felt. The heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry ground. Nobody escapes. So then that begs the question, because of Haggai 2, 21 and 22, you have to start thinking that maybe God here is talking about the kings, kingdoms of the earth. And of course, all of this has to come, all of this has to come before Christ comes back. God has a plan. That plan will not be thwarted by whoever is in the White House, whoever is in the, the kingdom of, of the world. Nothing's going to thwart that because God oversees it all. And he's telling Haggai, look, I'm going to shake things and it's going to be all right. And when he shook the Babylonian Empire, it came crumbling down the king of Persia, King Darius, took over, and immediately the situation changed. And the people were free. And they went back home and forgot God. It's quite amazing. Uh, when I first trusted in Christ, October 12, 1981, boy, I was excited. But I couldn't figure out why some of my drinking buddies were not so excited when I got saved. Then there was a period where I kind of forgot God. But then somebody, and I don't know who it was to this day, put a chair up by my bunk. My two roommates said, and they're not saved anyway, they, they wouldn't do that moved my chair up by my bunk and there was a track that said remember me and immediately because I was a young Christian I would just gotten saved and then eventually wound up going to Emmanuel Baptist Church met Audrey and I was already saved so I got baptized As a matter of fact we were just there in in Texas and I uh, was looking at that baptistry and said wow that's where it all started for me that baptism Now, <clears throat> notice the presence in verse 7. Now, this is God shaking, whether kingdoms or dominions, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. 
Okay, there's interpretations of what this means. Number one, it's messianic. It is a cryptic reference to Christ. If you go back and you study uh, Augustine and uh, Origen and all of the early and even ancient scholars, by the way, people think that uh, the modern-day scholar, uh, when, when we start talking about exegesis, that means to extract out. The exegesis actually started in the first century. So scholars were exegeting passages of Scripture. They were called the school of the prophets. And that was at the time of Christ. So people think, well, these recent scholars, they, it, this is all just recent. No, it's not. This, what I'm doing here is a time-honored tradition of extracting the text and preaching the text. This has been going on, Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But our methods have gotten better, and our understanding of the languages have gotten better. But here you have the ESV writes it this way, so that the treasures, as we just read, all nations shall come. When you go back and you look at the Latin Vulgate, which is one of the earliest transition, or translations, it, it says this, and the desire, not treasure, and the desire of all nations shall come. The desire of all nations, according to this view, is Jesus. You see how that translation changes the meaning here. The King James Version, the New King James. And they shall come to the desire of all nations. We look at Christ. At this point, he is not the desire of all nations. In fact, in our culture today, it becomes problematic when we claim the name of Christ. People will not like you. In fact, they will hate you. And they will say all manner of evil things against you. But when that happens, we are blessed. And I'm paraphrasing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some take the shaking to mean the first coming of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine claimed that. However, the word treasure, hemda, means valuables. So when we start thinking about this in messianic terms, it kind of loses some of its steam. There's non-Messianic, and I'll give you the three views under this one. So there's like 20 different views, and I'm not going to spend 45 minutes doing those views. But there's three different views. The first view under the non-Messianic is, shall come to the delight of all nations. That is a reference to Mount Zion. I kind of like that view, because it does seem a little eschatological here, in Haggai. And the word yet in a little while can mean short or long. Why can it not mean both? Why can't God say, okay, I'm going to shake it, but until the final shaking, I am going to bring down these kingdoms one by one until Christ comes. A second one is all nations will arrive with riches. 
And of course, this actually was going on during, the, during this time. And that view says that the nations will send money via political representatives. The third view, which is also good, the desire of all nations will come. Not messianic, but that the Lord is the one that is desired, God, Yodehavev, and that he will provide the resources for the temple. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar took all of it, and then for 70-some years, the nation was in poverty. But the news here is that God will provide. God will provide. The third view is a middle ground, both financial and fulfillment in Christ. I always think it's better to say, yes, yes. It could mean either, particularly when the language and the nuance of the language could mean either thing, and you've got scholars completely divided on it. Why can't it be that God is shaking the foundations and eventually will bring it to the culmination of Christ? Why, why can't we say that? That way we don't err and we acknowledge and uphold the scripture, which I think we should be doing, particularly the pastor in particular, particularly on a Sunday morning when he has to stand before the congregation of God and give an interpretation. This is all what preaching is. It is an interpretation of Scripture, and that interpretation must be deadly accurate. The pulpit is no place to play around, and therefore you have to go at it methodically and carefully. Richard Taylor writes this, the point of verse 7, and that's what we just read, is that the post-exilic Jews will not have to bear themselves the financial burden of the rebuilding of the temple. God will do that. The Lord will so move the surrounding nations that they will underwrite the significant degree, the heavy cost of constructing and refurbishing the place of worship. There seems to be no adequate reason for taking these words any other way. And you go back and you look at the word treasure, it means valuables in almost every context. But, let me throw a wrinkle. Or you can say, throw a wrench and gum up the works. Which is why I think you need to take it the way that I'm taking it. God was going to shake the foundations. He was going to provide for them. But could it also be messianic? And I think that that third option is the best option. Here's the wrinkle. Here's the wrench. Are you ready for it? Hebrews 12:26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more. Where did he get that from? He got that from Haggai. It's the only quote from the, in the New Testament from Haggai. You say, Pastor, how do you find this stuff? It takes a lot of digging. It takes a lot of digging. <laughs> Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made 
in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is a direct reference to when God shakes loose the lost world and the, and the, sin, and the saved are not able to be shaken because they are built and based upon the rock of Jesus Christ. This is a reference to the, the judgment of God on the world. Why did the writer of Hebrews lift this out of the book of Haggai? Kind of makes me question. Was Haggai's approach dual? Did he tell the nation of Israel, do not worry. God will provide for your needs. And through a series of shakings, God is going to fulfill the plan that he started in Christ. When I saw that, I pumped the brakes a little bit. And I said, wait a minute. This is the only reference in the New Testament to Haggai. And it comes in Hebrews. Why Hebrews? Because Hebrews is trying to get the Jews to receive Christ. So Hebrews is a Jewish letter. We are reading a Jewish letter. And so they would have known this. By the way, their kids learned the, the Pentateuch early. They study this. They, they would have known this. They would have heard the stories. I will fill this house with glory. Kavod. So when God says here, I'm going to shake the nations, and they're going to actually fund this, which was happening really at the time, even the king of Persia had said, we're going to send resources to help. So God was already shaking these kings. So when Persia took over, they sent the Israelites back. They also gave them some money. They were not doing well. Remember, they were not doing well because they forgot the house of God and God blew away their prophets. You remember reading that? You put money in a bag and it just falls out. Why is that? Because my house lays in ruins. Here's the issue for us is what are your priorities today? Is your priority God first, everything else second? I'll just say it this way. If that order is reversed, is God obligated to bless you? Is he? Not according to scripture. And so we have to be careful in our own lives too to say, wait a minute. I want him more than anything in this world. Sometimes the shakings of our, of our own doing. And usually those shakings could be anything. Financial, uh, financial collapse. Look at our nation. Inflation. Now they're saying it's at a 50-year high. Why is that? Because we forgot God. And the church has been largely silent. 
and that could be problematic. But God says, I'm going to fill this house with glory. That is the doxa, the presence of God. Here's the ultimate thing. God will be glorified, but also God will reign. God will reign. And he said, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Man, he uses that word Lord of hosts, armies. The spiritual armies and the physical armies. And by the way, God can use corrupt nations to bring down nations. Did it all the time in the Old Testament. The Assyrians were ruthless, and yet God used them to teach the nation of Israel a lesson. So we got to be watchful of this. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. I love Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. Brothers and sisters, never forget that no matter how bad things get, this is his world. Satan is limited in scope. God will reign victorious. This is his world. When we look at the world around us and we see how bad things are, just say, okay, God, I don't understand why this is happening, but I do know one thing. God will reign. This is his world. Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do. And God has a place for Satan when this whole thing is over where he will ultimately be defeated because our God reigns. Yodehave is the great I am. He is the great God. He is the creator and sustainer of life. Every breath that we breathe is his doing and that he allows that to take place. He, he will be glorified. He says, all of the gold and all of the silver is mine, declares the Lord. What can I not do? <clears throat> There's a movement. It's very fascinating to watch cultural trends. Uh, you ever see these commercials now that they're advertising? Buy gold and silver. Right? Now there's a new currency. You may have heard of it. It's called Bitcoin. You ever heard of that? That's where the money, the, the, the physical, I, well, I, I didn't bring a dollar, but uh, the, the paper money's kind of going. I don't see people write checks anymore. Although I did see an elderly lady the other day at Walmart. Uh, God bless her. She was holding up the line and she was writing out a check. I, I haven't seen one of those in a long time. Although I, I have written a couple. But all the silver and all the gold is God's. Uh, I've been to Fort Knox. I was there for training. Fort Knox is where they have all the money. You can't get in that place. I can tell you, you cannot get into the central place. There are a series of things that you cannot get to. But you know who can? God. And someday, he's going to walk right in there and just take it. Here's what we need to know. 
God will provide. You struggling this morning? Maybe financially? Let me just, let me tell you this. God will provide. I think of so many incidents in my life when I was in Bible college, couldn't rub two quarters together, didn't have any money. Just one, one example, and I may have shared this before. If I, if I did, it's just senior moment. Forget. We went to this mailbox in the center of campus. It was a white mailbox. We, we jokingly called it God's answer. And every day, you could see the students, the, <clears throat> the family housing. You would see the students standing there waiting by the big white box. <laughs> what does God have for us today? And there was a time when the mechanic told me, one of the, the mechanic was a Christian. He said, your car payment, your, your car needs work. It's going to cost $250. At that time, I was, I think I was preaching at a little church making 125 a week. And we used a lot of that for food. I didn't have any money. Interesting. That day, I get the mail, and there's a letter from moments remember that from moments the pastor at first baptist in moments said to the congregation i feel like we need to send mike and audrey some money i opened it up and it was enough to fix the car god will provide for your needs. Maybe not your wants, but we have such a good God, he may even give you your wants. As long as it doesn't take your eye off him. Trust me, God will provide for your needs. Take that worry off the shelf. All we have to do is focus on him. God says, all the gold and all the silver is mine. And what he did there is he, he pricked the pastor's heart at First Baptist and he told the congregation, we need to send Pastor Mike and Audrey some money. They sent it. God moved the gold from there down to Graceville, Florida, which had one stoplight. The biggest draw was, Grace, was, the, was the school. They had a Hardee's there. And every Saturday morning, we'd migrate over to Hardee's and talk about preaching. It was actually, you know, it's like God removed us from everything and said, okay, now you need to learn how to deal with me. So we didn't have a lot of money. And I was, I went from being a sergeant, making a lot of money in the army to making basically nothing. My long-running joke with my wife, she talks about a house. I said, I've saved you from a life of prosperity. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> thank, thank goodness, right? Yeah. 
The Israelites were poor. They didn't have the money, but God says, wait, I'll take care of it. And the same deal goes for us. You look back, and I like those moments where God shows up and does what only God can do. Don't, don't, don't you? Where God provides for your needs. Let's, we're, we're approaching the runway. We're, we're getting ready to land this sermon. And now it's going to be, we're out of the clouds, we're going to land it. Peace. Notice what Haggai writes. The latter glory of the house shall be greater than the former glory. The former glory was Solomon's temple. How glorious it was. But this new temple, think about this. Think about this. You're one of the workers getting ready to work on the temple. And he says, wait, wait, you're going to watch, watch this. I am going to do something that you cannot do on your own, but I am going to show up in a big way, and this new temple is going to be infinitely superior to Solomon's temple. And there were people there from Ezra, we learned, that these people saw Solomon's temple in 586 when it was destroyed. They knew what it looked like. So you're, you're as you wow, that's going to be awesome. You mean it's going to be better than that? Yes. God says, I've got something coming. And by the way, that is a picture when, when we think about heaven, brothers and sisters, oh, wow. Wait. Wait for it. God has something great in store for us. And I'm not talking a health and wealth gospel here. I'm talking about something that is fixed, immovable, and anchored in Christ. We have waiting for us. And it's going to be great. Trust me, it's bad now. We're going difficult times, but just, just wait. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts 14 times. Shalom. That has nine different meanings, meanings in Hebrew. It can mean blessing. Shalom. By the way, may the Lord bless you this week. As his under-shepherd, I say, may the Lord bless you this week. It can mean contentment. And I'm only using the ones that I think it could mean. It could mean contentment. No need for anything else. How much is Christ worth? Put a dollar amount. Now how much is your salvation worth? Do we really need anything else when we have Christ living in us? I've met Christians who have gone through horrible things and yet they just they have a peace the lost world does not have that. Their peace is transitory. For the believer, that peace should reside all the way through our heart. I know I'm going through a difficult time, Lord, but give me the peace that surpasses all understanding, human understanding. Give me that peace. God says, I'm going to fill this. 
It can also mean salvation or freedom from danger. By the way, there's a lost world right outside these doors. That direction, that direction, Philo, Sidoris, Champagne, Savoy. People need to know Jesus. It's our mission to go out and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that can bring shalom to the soul. Peter Williams. The truth was that the outward glory of Solomon's, Zerubbabel's, Herod's temple, which later in the New Testament, was eventually destroyed and passed away. But the glory of those brought into salvation down through the ages would bring peace and reconciliation with God and would last for all eternity. Again, our lives, but the value of the shalom peace of the soul, of the heart, when the Lord sends the Holy Spirit into us to live, brings peace. Why? Because we trust him. We trust him with our finances. We trust him with our physical. We trust him with everything. And we know that no matter what befalls us, God will be glorified and God will reign. And we don't lose that. And we press forward until we see him face to face. If you're watching by Facebook and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to offer that to you today. To trust in Christ. To ask forgiveness of your sins and invite him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. And at that moment, he will do it. And you will be saved. You will be accounted among the ones who will see him face to face. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. And you want to trust him as your Lord and Savior today. You come forward. I know a whole church that would rejoice, right? A whole church would re rejoice. Satan wants to keep people seated. He doesn't want them to move. Because he wants you to go down with the ship. Christ wants to save you and deliver you. Another thing I'd like to say this morning. If you're going through a situation or a trial or a circumstance. Trust him. Trust him.